Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning again. Glad you're here. Listen, we're starting a new series today called Let Me Explain. If you did not pick up a resource on your way in, uh, grab one on your way out. Pastor Michael will talk more about that toward uh, the end. But I'm, I'm excited about this series. Let me tell you the heartbeat behind it. Uh, we're living in a day and time where um, we, are, we are being asked more and more questions about not just what we believe, but why we believe it as Christians. Um, that as, as our culture shifts, what we're going to find is, is that there's more and more opposition to some of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity. And so we, as a generation you know, living today, we must be prepared um, to talk about what we believe and why we believe it and, and why it matters uh, to life in and, and, and all kinds of areas, uh, specifically when it comes to uh, eternity and morality. Here's what Peter says about this. Peter talks about our need to be able to communicate clearly what we believe in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I've turned there to be on the screen. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it, listen to this, with gentleness and respect. Here's what Peter is commanding. He's saying we as believers must be prepared, he says, to make a defense. Now, he doesn't say we must be defensive. He says to make a defense. The word here is the idea of, it's the Greek word apologia. It's the word we get the word apologetics. It's, in other words, it's an explanation that we, this is a command, we must be ready at all times to give an explanation to people who ask us about the hope that we have in Christ. So when someone says, why do you as a Christian believe this? Or why do you hold to this? Or why is this your hope for your life? We must be able to sit down intelligently with gentleness and respect and be able to say, let me explain. What do we believe about this issue? Well, let me explain. I just want to sit down with a cup of coffee, over a cup of coffee, over dinner, and let's just have a conversation. Because listen, we we as Christians, there there is enough support in the scriptures and even beyond the scriptures that validate the scriptures about why we believe what we believe. And it's time as Christians, I believe this, by the way. Um, and this is not just me. Men like Billy Graham have said this. The next great awakening is not going to happen within the four walls of the local church. It's going to happen as the church, you and me, the people of God, uh, go into coffee shops, into workplaces, and have gospel conversations. And so we need to have the ability to have an intelligent conversation. So this is why we're doing this uh, series. And this morning, we're going to talk about why we believe the Bible. Why we believe the Bible. There's a, there's a shift in American culture in regards to what we uh, believe about the Bible. 80% of Americans, according to uh, Pew Research done last year, uh, 80% of Americans believe that there is a God. They believe in a God. You know what that God is, who it is, they believe in a God. But only 25% believe the Bible. So th this mean, what this means for us is that we're living in a culture where uh, fewer and fewer people believe the Bible, trust the Bible, acknowledge the Bible, and yet it is the foundational book that we hold as believers. And so we need to be informed about this book of why we believe it and why we put our trust in it. And listen, in this room, I know there's a level of ignorance in regards to understanding and knowing the Bible. 
Y'all remember uh, back in the, I guess it was the 90s, maybe in early 2000s, there was a guy named Jay Leno that was doing the Tonight Show. You remember that? He would do this thing called jaywalking. Y'all remember jaywalking? It was one of my favorite things that he did. One, one certain episode, they did a jaywalking about the Bible. And here's some questions that they asked. And it just showed the ignorance of culture and society. But the first question was this, who found the burning bush? The answer, Richard Nixon. And then there was another one. It says, who was swallowed by? And after the person had no clue, uh, they said, well, who swallowed, was swallowed by the whale? And they said, Joe. And the person says, DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio. He was swallowed by the whale. And then the question was asked, who was Cain and Abel? The answer, it must have been a sitcom. I don't know. Uh, and another one is, thou shalt not covet blank. What is it that we should not covet according to the Ten Commandments, which is the basic you know, list that everybody should know? The answer was, you should not covet your neighbor's car. This is what they thought it was. Some of you were like, that would have been my answer as well. Listen, there's a level of ignorance. The Bible, listen, listen, is said by some to be the most unread bestseller of all time. Because we use it for decoration, we use it to hold um, a, a place in, in, a, in, our, in, our, in our nightstand, but yeah, it's something we rarely pick up and few of us really understand and know. And here's the thing, this is what we got to wrap our mind around, we're going to talk about this morning. The Bible for believers is the foundation of the Christian faith. It is not a book that guides the Christian faith, it is the book that, that, that upon which our Christian faith is built. That everything we know about God, Jesus, the gospel, salvation, eternity, life and godliness is rooted in God's word. And listen, foundations are important. Uh, the largest building in the world is in a place called Dubai. I've never been there. I always wanted to go to Dubai. Let me give you some uh, information about this. There's a picture of this building here, tallest building in the world. What is fascinating about this building is not just the height or its beauty. I mean, it's an unbelievable uh, piece of, of architect. But he, here's what's fascinating is the foundation. Tallest building in the world. Let me give you some statistics about or some numbers about its foundation. It contains 59, around 59,000 cubic yards of concrete. The foundation itself weighs 110,000 tons, including 194 concrete and steel piers. Each are buried 165 feet into the ground. This building, by the way, costs $1.5 billion. That's B, billion dollars. But the foundation budget, check this out, is $271 million. $271 million just for the foundation. So why such emphasis on the foundation? And here's the answer. We know this. The integrity of the structure is dependent upon the quality of the foundation. And so what I want to do this morning, I don't want to build the foundation for the Bible. It's not my goal today. My, my goal today is just to describe how strong the foundation is. I want us to be able to walk away this morning understanding a couple of things. One, what do we believe about the Bible as Christians? The second thing I want us to walk away with is why do we believe this? What are some of the evidences that support our belief? And then the third thing I want us to look at this morning is, is so what does that mean? What, is, what do we do in light of what we've uh, discovered? And so I'm going to get you to grab your Bibles, if you would, go to 2 Timothy. We're going to be kind of in several different passages, but two primarily at the front. I want to talk about why we believe the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to be. But let me give you the answer of this question or this statement, what we believe. Uh, we believe historically as Christians and then specifically as Baptists. Say, what, what makes Baptist Baptist? All right, let me give you one of the answers for that. Well, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God and is inerrant and infallible. We believe the Bible is inspired by God 
And because it's inspired by God, that it is inerrant and infallible. This is what we believe about the Bible. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, this is, there, there are a lot of verses that point to this reality, two primary. We're going to look at both of those briefly. Uh, this is what Paul writes about the Scriptures in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So everybody say, all Scripture. So all Scripture. And I want to go into detail of how we got the Bible. I mean, there's, there's a lot I would love to cover, but we can't. But let's just, just say, all Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul simply says all Scripture is, is breathed out by God. This is a, a Greek word. It's a compound word, theonoustos. It's, a, it's two, two words, theos, which means God. And then, and then it's the other word is pneuma, which means uh, to breathe or breath. Uh, oftentimes, this, this Greek word in the Hebrew uh, language, the, the word for breath or to breathe is oftentimes translated in the English Bible as the spirit, the spirit. But here is what Paul in essence is saying. All scripture is breathed out by God. Here in essence is what he's saying. All scripture is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. That all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Just as God breathed life, the spirit into Adam in Genesis uh, God breathed life into the scriptures, that he breathed out his word into the hearts of the human authors who penned uh, the words of scripture. So what we find is that the word of God, uh, the, the, rather, rather the Bible is not the words of man, but rather the words of God. It is breathed out by him. It is inspired by him. So, so what does this look like? Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. This is the uh, second major text that you'll want to uh, understand if you want to understand the nature of the Bible and its inspired nature. Second Peter chapter one verse uh, twenty. If you if you didn't turn there, it'll be on the screen. Uh, Peter reinforces not only the Bible is inspired but how it's inspired. Look what he says. He says, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so, so Peter comes out of the box and he says, listen, here's what you need to know, that no prophecy of Scripture, no Scripture has ever has its origin in the will of man, that it does not come from man himself. That what we see contained in the pages of the Bible is not merely the words of men, although it was penned by men. But rather, look what he says. He says, but men spoke from God as they were, listen to this, carried along by the Holy Spirit. When he says carried along by the Holy Spirit, this is how God breathed um, or inspired through the Holy Spirit his word. That, that men appointed uh, by God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This phrase, uh, carried along by the Spirit, uh, is a picture, it's kind of a word picture here. So, so the word literally could be translated, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Or they were influenced by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it could be inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the word really is a picture of this. How many of you have ever seen a sailboat, right? So you see a sailboat on the water. And, and so what you have is, is that when they raise the sail, what happens? The wind blows and fills the sail and the boat is carried along by the wind, Right? That's how a sailboat works. It is carried along. It is moved by. It is influenced by the wind. It goes, right, because the wind is blowing in it. This is the word that is used here to describe how the, the men who authored the Scripture received the words that they got. They were, they were carried by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, 
This is not divine dictation. Here's what I mean by this. Some people think that, I mean, it's like the, the authors of Scripture, according to this, is like they went into a trance and all of a sudden they're like, what is happening here? And they're writing all these words. They don't know what they're doing. That's not how we believe this happened. We believe this is not divine dictation, but divine inspiration. That God in his sovereignty was able to use the various authors with their personalities, with their education, with their background, with their circumstances, with their all of those things, that he was able to use them uniquely. And then through the filling of the Spirit, through the, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he was able to, through them, write his words. This is why you have a variety of types of literature and different uh, types of writing within the, the Scriptures because God was using unique individuals to write His Word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, this should blow our ever-loving mind to know that when we hold this book, we are not holding the mere words of men. We are holding the Word of God. That God has revealed Himself to us. Now listen, how many of you have watched kids play hide-and-seek before? Anybody? You love it when, you know, the, the whole point of hide and seek is for you to hide, they seek, and they can't find, right? That's the whole point of hide and seek. But if you play it with a kid, it's like, hey, where are you? And they answer you, right? I'm over here, and they're hiding, right? Like that, they miss the point of the game. Listen, here's what we need to know, is that we're not pursuing a God that's playing hide and seek with creation. God says, listen, the heavens declare who I am. And not just the heavens declare, I am revealing myself through my word that the pages of scripture, I am letting you know this is who I am. This is who you are. This is the life that I have created for you. And I want you to know me in every, uh, uh, every way possible. And so even beyond that, the word that we have written has even come in bodily form. And his name is Jesus, who is the word made flesh. So if you want to know God, what he's like, who you are, what you've been created for, what it means to know God. Listen, you look no further than the pages of Scripture because this is God's revelation. This is God saying, this is who I am. We do not need to look beyond the Scriptures because in them we find God. This is His, His Word. So this is what we believe. We believe the Bible is inspired by God and is inerrant and infallible. By the way, why would we include infallible and inerrant there? And it's simply this, is that if the Bible is inspired by God... God is perfect. Amen? All right, so if God is perfect, then his word must also be perfect as well. That his word must be without error. It is, is infallible. So here's the question then I want to wrestle with for the most of our time this morning is going to be this. Why do we believe it? If this is what we believe, then why do we believe it? And I'm going to give you a couple of things here. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you what, what we're about to do, all right? This is going to be a lot of academic and history and different things, and here's, here's why we're doing this. Uh, anytime you want to have a conversation with someone who is a skeptic of Christianity or specifically skeptical of the Bible, uh, it's a knee-jerk reaction for us to say, okay, the Bible is true, and then we open the Bible and, and we show them First Timothy or 2 Timothy and, first, and 2 Peter and say, well, the Bible says it's true, so it must be true. The problem is, is that you're having a conversation with someone who doesn't believe the Bible, so for you to use the Bible to explain why the Bible is true, you're having an argument. It's, it's, it's self-attesting. I mean, it's like this. Let's say it's raining outside, and I come in, and you're inside. You've not been outside, and I come in and say, man, it is pouring down there. And you say to me, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe it's pouring outside. Uh, I don't believe that it's raining outside. And you, 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 then you say to the person, but, but I said it's raining outside. Well, show me that it's raining. Okay, it's raining outside. They're going to look at you and say, no, 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 I need more evidence than that because you're self-attesting. You're saying that it's raining outside, and I don't believe you. But what if then you, you showed them the umbrella that's having water drip off of it and that your clothes are wet 
and then you pull up on your phone the forecast that shows that there's rain. Now, here's what you're doing. You're, you're, the testimony that you're giving about the weather conditions is now being verified by, by, by other means, right? It doesn't alter what you say about the weather. You're just verifying that what you're speaking is true. So here's what I want to do. I want to point to the water on the umbrella. All right, we believe the Bible is true. We believe the Bible is inspired by God. Why do we believe this? What I want to talk to you about for the next little bit is going to be the water on the umbrella. It's going to be the weather report that kind of verifies some other evidences that support this belief that we have. And so here is the answer I'm going to give you, and we'll walk through each one of these. The Bible is unique in proclamation, prophecy, uh, perseverance, and preservation. This is what we're going to do. This is the water on the umbrella. I could do more. I don't have time, all right? We'll be here until next Monday, all right? Not really, all right? So here's the number one. Write this down. Why do we believe the Bible? The first, it's unique in its proclamation. The Bible is unique in its proclamation. Uh, One of the most remarkable and unexplainable evidence of the divine nature of the Bible is the amazing continuity of message that it proclaims. The amazing continuity of message that it uh, proclaims. Here's what I mean. So let me kind of give you Bible 101. The Bible is made up of 66 individual books um, that those individual books, when you compile them together, you have what we call the Bible. Those books are authored by a variety of people. But when you put the Bible together, when all the books individually come together, 66 books make up one book called the Bible, it is telling one major story from Genesis to Revelation. All the individual stories within the story is telling a major story, and that is God's redemption of humanity through a central character whose name is Jesus. So if you ever want to know what is the Bible, I just gave you a definition. The Bible is one book telling, or is is multiple books making up one book telling one story, God's redemption of of humanity through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this sets the Bible apart because it's multiple books telling one story. And some would say, no, that's not, that doesn't make it uh, unique because I could tell you other literature that has the same uh, approach. So like Chronicles of Narnia or uh, something like, um, um, the, the Lord of the Rings, you have multiple books, right, that are telling one massive story when you put them together. Independent stories that can stand alone, and yet there is, when you put them all together, there's one bigger story. But here's the difference between books like that and the Bible. Um, the, 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 those books are written by singular authors, all right, in a, in a, in a short time and space. Does that make sense? The Bible, listen, here's what makes it, makes it so unique. The Bible is written, it's made up of 66 individual books by 40 different authors. By the way, the authors have different backgrounds. Some, listen, were, were kings, some were peasants, some were farmers, some were fishermen, uh, some were tax collectors, some were um, uh, doctors. So you have 40 different authors writing the 66 books from varying backgrounds. Listen, it was written over a 1,500-year span of time. Most of the authors did not know each other. It was written in three different languages on three different continents. And yet, with all of that uh, varying um, 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 writing, all of the, the variety in which we see the 66 weeks, 40 authors, 1,500 years, three languages, three continents, all of that, here's what you find, one massive story. One massive story, God's redemption of humanity through the finished work of Jesus. Despite all of the differences, it has a unity that is unique. No other ancient literature is like it. Now, let me just kind of, just kind of throw this possibility. Let's say I was to bring on stage today, I say, I'm going to introduce you to 40 authors. 
I'm going to put 40 authors. We're going to spread, spread across the stage, and here's what we're going to do. We're not just going to pick random authors. We're going to pick uh, authors who are similar in age, similar in writing style, similar in education. And we're going to put them on stage, and we're going to put them there for, at the same time. We're going to give them two hours. And we're going to ask you to write, these, these authors, the only thing we're going to ask you to do, we're going to ask you to write a story, individual story. Without communicating with one another, you write individual stories. But when the stories are all put together, the individual 40 stories need to tell one massive story and the character needs to be the same. What's the chances of that happening? Right? It's not happening. So you mean to tell me that I can put 40 authors who are from similar backgrounds, similar education, on the same day, on the same stage, in the same moment, and have them write stories that we can't compile a story out of the individual stories where there is a, a seamlessness and a harmony that exists between purpose and character. Yet the Bible is 66 books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years, three languages, three continents. And yet from Genesis to Revelation, it's one major story. The Bible is unique. It is set apart from all other forms, uh, other writings of uh, literature. Listen to what Walter Kaiser says about this. He says, there are no other literary products that begin, uh, that could begin to rival this accomplishment when so many uh, who were this far apart still contribute to one and the same story, plan, and purpose for God. Listen, and here's, here's my little addendum to this. The explanation for this uniqueness in proclamation is that while it was authored by numerous individuals, it was inspired by one being. This is what Norman Geisler, one of my favorite theologians, says. He says, one of the supporting lines of evidence for the Bible's divine origin is its amazing unity amid its vast diversity. That is, even though the Bible was composed of, by many persons of diverse background and in different periods, nonetheless, it manifests an astounding evidence that there is one, and I love this capital M, mind behind it. The Bible's unique, amen? It's unique in its proclamation. Here's number two. It's unique in its prophecy. It's unique in its prophecy. Here's, here's another argument for the divine nature of the Bible is its overwhelming amount of predictions and prophecies that you see fulfilled at later times. So here's, here's what I mean. Uh, through, the Bible, through, the, through the Bible, rather, you, you find a vast number of, listen, specific prophecies uh, delivered with great detail and, uh, and information that, 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 that are predicted thousands of years before the events ever occur. And here's, here's, let me kind of get out of the notes for a moment, just kind of explain this like this. Um, the Bible, it contains uh, hundreds of different, or dozens of different categories with hundreds of different prophecies. Uh, concerning events, like historic events, like rising of nations, falling of nations, appointing of leaders, all those things, right? And what you find is, is that some of these are hundreds of years, some of them, um, 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 you know, decades before or, or some of even thousands of years before the events happen. And yet, with precision, you see the fulfillment of these. And you can look at the Bible and you can see it not just biblically but historically. But I can't jump into all of the categories. Let me just use one category of prophecy in the Old Testament, which is the Messianic prophecies. Here's what I mean by that. It's the prophecies that are telling about the coming of the Messiah. So, so in, in the Bible, there are approximately 322 prophecies pointing to specific details about the coming of the Messiah. And listen, all 322 find their 
fulfillment in one single person, and that is the person of Jesus. So 322 Messianic prophecies finding their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Let me give you some examples of of these uh, prophecies. Um, Jesus is born of a virgin uh, in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah, descendant of David, performed miracles, betrayed by a close friend. Not just betrayed by a close friend, but specifically prophesied for 30 pieces of silver. His hands, his feet would be pierced. Uh, He'd be placed in a rich man's tomb, and then he would resurrect again. Those are just to name a handful of prophecies that were made about the Messiah that Jesus fulfills. I'm going to give you one specific. It's found in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, you don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. But Psalm 22 opens up with a phrase that you'll, you'll be familiar with. The phrase is this, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Why does that sound familiar? Because I preached it last week on Easter, all right? So Jesus on the cross makes this declaration, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why does Jesus do this? Well, one is because in this moment, Jesus, as we talked about last week, was being separated from the Father. But another reason Jesus specifically makes this declaration, because it's the opening line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 contains within it a messianic prophecy. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone around the foot of the cross who understood the scriptures would have automatically had their minds go to Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, there are specific details given about how the Messiah would die that Jesus is fulfilling in that moment. Let me give you a couple of them real quick. Verse uh, number six in, in Psalm 22 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their uh, heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So so if you read the gospel account, here's what you're going to discover. In the gospels, you'll see that some of the uh, phrases being made by religious leaders and other bystanders around the foot of the cross were almost identical to what the psalmist writes would be said about the Messiah during this time. Here's another one, verse number Um, uh, 16, he says, for dogs encompass me. Dogs encompass me. Why is that important? Dogs encompass me. Do you know what the Jews were referred to Gentiles as in the day of Jesus? Dogs. Who was standing around the foot of the cross? Roman soldiers, dogs were encompassing him. Listen to the next phrase in here. A company of evildoers encircle me. Jesus was crucified between what? Between two thieves. He is, he is encircled by uh, uh, evil doers. Listen to this next one. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What was happening according to the Gospels while Jesus is hanging on the cross? They were casting lots for his clothing. But listen, this is not circumstantial. You know what my favorite is? When it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Why is that so significant in there? Because there is un- there's undoubtedly, this, the writer of this psalm is describing in detail Roman crucifixion. Why is that significant? They were describing Roman crucifixion 800 years before it was invented. We're talking specific prophecy. Just look at, the, just consider for a moment the science of probabilities. Science of probabilities. What are the chances of this happening? So um, if you were to think about one prophecy being fulfilled by one individual, there were boys born in Bethlehem, right? So that would have been pretty easy. But a, Peter, a guy named Peter Stoner did, did, a, did the, through the science of, of mathematical probabilities, came up with the, the chances that one individual could fulfill all 322 of these prophecies. And I'm not going to go into this one because 
the mathematical equation he came up with is something that our minds can't even be begin to wrap around, right? I mean, it's just a number that's in, incomprehensible. And so he says, okay, let's take a bite size out of this. Let's just choose eight of the 322. What are the mathematical probabilities of one person fulfilling eight of these uh, prophecies? Uh, he came up with a number. The chances are this according to the science of, of, of probabilities. It is a, a one, listen to this, a one in 100 quadrillion chance. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. One in, and so let me give you this illustration. Some of you have heard this illustration. This is the most common one used around this uh, mathematical probability. Imagine you take the great nation of Texas, right? The great republic, right? So we, we take Texas, vast as it is, and we said, uh, let's do something. Uh, let's cover it with 100 quadrillion silver dollars, all right? 100 quadrillion silver dollars would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That's a lot of silver coins, right? A lot of silver dollars. And then let's say the one, uh, 100 uh, quadrillion silver dollars, you, you decided you're going to take a, a marker and you're going to mark one of those coins. So now one and 100 quadrillion coins. And you mix it in somewhere in the vastness of the state of Texas. And you just randomly put it somewhere, mix it in. And then you take a random person, you blindfold them, you place them in a random place in the state of Texas. And you tell them you've got one chance, pick up one coin. The probability, the chances of them finding the coin would be one and 100 quadrillion. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus did not just fulfill eight of these. He fulfilled 322 of them. That Jesus is the one who says, listen, I am the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. All, this, this, this says to us, this screams to us, there is something unique. This is not a merely man-written book. This is a divinely inspired book. It cannot be explained. Which leads me to number three. It's unique in its perseverance. It's unique in its perseverance. Uh, when it comes to the Bible, no other piece of literature has ever been faced with as much opposition or hostility as the Bible. Through the, through the years, the Bible has, been, uh, uh, has faced government laws that have tried to destroy it or remove it from society altogether. A um, couple of examples of this. I'm going to give you like three or four examples of this. Under the tyranny of, of Antiochus Epiphanes, extreme efforts were made to destroy all of the Hebrew scriptures. You know what's a miracle about this is that you, so you have a powerful government trying to destroy uh, these, these ancient writings, these Hebrew scriptures. You know what happened? It, it only sparked in the heart of God's people a deeper desire to pursue the scriptures. You know what they end up doing? They end up examining them closer than they ever have, and they finalize what we now know as the Old Testament canon. So, so, so rather than the Bible being destroyed, God used the persecution and suffering of the, the God's people and specifically the assault on Scripture to only bring to the surface what is truly his. This is amazing. Another uh, leader uh, by the name of Diocletian in, in 303 AD, under his rule and reign, he hated Christianity. He despised Christianity. And here's what he said. We want to wipe Christianity off the map. So here's what I'm going to do. He gave a command that churches be burned, Christians be killed, and the Bible be destroyed. Here's a quote from the emperor, Roman emperor Diocletian. He says, Christians are a people of the book. If you destroy the book, you destroy the people. 
So he set out on an all-out assault. What's interesting is within 25 years, Diocletian was dead and gone, and another emperor named Constantine became leader of the Roman Empire, and he gave an edict and a command that the Bible actually be reproduced and paid for by the Roman Empire. A guy named John Wycliffe had a passion for the scriptures, wanted to see them translated into English language, and he faced unbelievable opposition his entire time of doing his work. He worked diligently so that every common man, this was his goal, I want every common man to have a copy of God's word in their own tongue. But in, 19, uh, in 1384, rather, at the age of 56, Wycliffe died of a stroke. He was so hated, by the way, he was so hated, and there was so much opposition to his work of reproducing the Bible and translating it so it could be known in common languages. Uh, he was so despised that 43 years after his death, uh, the people of the culture hated God's word so much, they dug his body up, burned his bones, and scattered his ashes. And here was their reasoning. We wanted to make it more difficult on the day of resurrection for God to resurrect him. Like, how much hatred must you have against the Word of God to go through all of that? And by the way, if God is the God that resurrects the dead, I don't think scattering ashes is going to be a dilemma for him, right? And he's like, oh, but dang it, I don't know what to do now, right? He's not, it's not happening. <laughs> Another guy by the name of William Tyndale in the 1500s devoted his life to making scriptures available. And for this, listen to this, he was strangled and burned at the stake at the age of 42, at my age. Because he had a passion for God's word and there was such hatred and hostility towards God's word. He was, he was strangled, he was burned at the stake. But listen, four years after his death, the king of England ordered that his English version of the Bible be printed and made available. And that's the King James version of the Bible we have today. The number of stories that I could tell that I've read personally, through history, of the assault on God's word would, would blow your mind. You know what's fascinating? No other book in ancient literature, no other book in history has been met with such opposition. And you know something? It's a fact statistic you might want to know about the Bible. There is no greater, more circulated book in history than God's word. Why is this? Why is this? Because it's, it's, it's divine in its nature. It is preserved not by man, but by God himself. One of my favorite stories is, is, is about a man by the name of, uh, he's a French um, a philosopher named Voltaire. Voltaire hated Christianity. He despised Christianity. I mean, like burned with fury against Christianity. And here's what he said. He says, listen, within 50, uh, sorry, within 100 years of my lifetime, here's what Voltaire said, Christianity will be extinct and the Bible will be erased from the planet. Here's what I love. This is, you ever wonder, does God have a sense of humor? Listen, God has a sense of humor. Within 50 years of Voltaire's death, his home was occupied by the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> and his printing press, his printing press was used to reproduce God's word. Voltaire went to the grave, but God's word grew and multiplied and was given. And listen, here's why. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 35. Jesus declares, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Listen, this is amazing. And that was a half-hearted clap that you should all be banned from church for. And... Um, Lastly, it's unique in its 
preservation. It's unique in its preservation. Here's what I mean. Um, no other book has been preserved with such volume as the Bible. No other book has been preserved in such volume as the Bible. Um, and here's what, this is fascinating. Despite the fact that it's, no book has ever been more persecuted and despised in the Bible, the Bible is unique in, in regards to the ancient documents that have been preserved. So let me kind of talk about this just for a, a moment. Uh, when it comes to the process that scholars use to validate ancient literature, they use this thing called the comparative analysis. So anytime you have ancient literature, but you don't have the original document itself, like for the Bible, we don't have the original, like Paul wrote this, this specific on this parchment he wrote. Like we don't have the original, right? But um, in ancient literature, when you are trying to verify the truthfulness or accuracy of the writing, you do what's called comparative analysis. So here, here's what that means. You do what's called a, a bibliography test on it or a biographical test on it. And here's what that looks like. There's two questions you ask. The first is this, how many copies of this ancient writing do we have? The second question you ask is, what are the dates of those writings in comparison to the original writings themselves? Does that make sense? Two questions. How many copies do you have, and how close are those copies to the original writings themselves? And kind of a third question that's in there, how consistent are the copies? In other words, is what's said in this one said in this one? Does that make sense? So th th this, this is how uh, scholars will verify the accuracy of, of ancient uh, literature. And, and, and when, Bi when the Bible is, is put under this type of microscope, the same uh, test that is used for other ancient documents, no other ancient documents stand against this test like the Bible. In fact, some scholars say it is almost embarrassing when you compare the Bible to other ancient writings. Let me just give you some, some, some numbers to help verify that. When it comes to the New Testament alone, there are more than 20 thousand ancient copies or portions of copies of the, the, the Bible in, in existence. There are over 20,000 copies or portions of copies of the New Testament in existence. Um, the closest book, by the way, in ancient literature, the closest book to the Bible is a book, uh, some of you may have read it in school, it's Homer's Iliad. Anybody heard of that book before? Uh, his writing, Homer's Iliad, um, it, it has a whopping 643 compared to 20,000 of the New Testament. I mean, it's embarrassing. In fact, they say if you compile all ancient literature outside of the Bible and you add them together, they still cannot compare to the 20,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that we have in regards to the New Testament. And here's what's amazing. The, the, not just the, the amount of manuscripts, but the date in which we are finding these manuscripts. And here's what I mean by this. Um, the New Testament is believed to have been completed by 180, by 180. So why is that important? Because that means that the entirety of the New Testament would have been written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses of Jesus. That there would have been men and women who would be able to verify the accuracy in which the gospel writers or the writers of the scripture were writing. So, so here's why that's important. So for instance, if you were to leave church today, and you were to go to a restaurant, and there are going to be non-church people there, or people who didn't go to church at New Beginnings, and people who did go to church at New Beginnings, and you sit down, and someone who didn't go to church today was to ask you, hey, how was church today? What happened? And you answer them by saying, well, it was an amazing day. We had a clown on stage who was doing magic tricks, and then there was this, this monkey juggling, you know, um, 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 you know these, 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 these bowling pins uh, while singing the national anthem. It would have been an amazing day, right? 
The people who were around you uh, who, who went to church would say, no, 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 that didn't happen. There was a clown on stage, but he wasn't doing magic tricks. <laughs> right? Why? Because your testimony would have been either invalid or valid based upon other people who saw the same thing you saw. So the gospel writers and the writers of the scripture write detailed description of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, circumstances of his life, even the resurrection within the, the, the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who would say, no, I saw it, I was there, that's true, or no, that's not true. This is why knowing that the Bible was completed, the New Testament was completed by 100 A.D. is important. Because there would have been men and women who could validate or invalidate the claims of the Scripture. This is why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says this, and more than 500 people saw him with their own eyes. And then Paul says this, and if you don't believe me, go ask them. Some of them are still alive. Now, why is this important? When it comes to ancient documents in regards to what we have in the New Testament, we have, check this out, 5,000 full or partial Greek manuscripts alone of the New Testament. 5,000. Many of them date back as early as 350 A.D., within 250 years of the original writings. Now, why is that important? Some of you are like, man, it's a long time. Let's compare it to the, to the closest to the New Testament of ancient literature. Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad, again, is the second, but a distant second. Uh, Homer's Iliad was written, uh, believed to be in 900 B.C. The earliest manuscript is 400 B.C., 500-year gap between the original writings and the earliest manuscript we have. We have nearly 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament that are within 250 years of the original writings. It's even better than this. There are smaller portions of the New Testament that have been discovered. Give me a couple of examples of this. The Gospel of John has been discovered, um, and, and portions of it have been discovered that, that can date back as early as 130 A.D. Why is this important? The Gospel of John was written in 90 A.D. Within 40 years, we have a copy, a portion of the copy of the Gospel of John, within 40 years of the original writing. There's another discovery of the Gospel of John uh, that included 14 chapters of John's Gospel that were believed to be dated in 200 A.D within 110 years of the original writing. There is zero, not one, zilch, other ancient literature that has this kind of ability to stand up against this comparative analysis. It is unique in and of itself. And here's what skeptics will say. Okay, I get it. There's a lot of manuscripts and some of them date early. Doesn't the Bible contain errors and contradictions? In other words, isn't there copies that say this and copies that say this and they don't line up? Isn't there a bunch of, 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 of errors in the Scripture? And the answer is no. Independent experts have studied this. Scholars have examined this. In comparing the manuscripts, the so-called errors that are existing that people want to point to, listen, are grammatical only. Grammatical only. And scholars will say this, and not one of the variances that skeptics want to point to have any bearings on its message or theology. Let me give you an example of this. In his book, uh, in a book, uh, Reinventing Jesus, one author says this, by far the most significant number of variants is spelling differences. The name John, for example, may be spelt with uh, one N or with two. Clearly, a variation of this sort in no way jeopardizes the meaning of the text. Spelling differences account for 75% of all the variances. He goes on to say that the other 25% 
are, have to do more with synonyms than anything else. Like, for instance, you would say he versus Lord. One copy would say he, one copy would say Lord. And so it, 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 there was, there was, there's no differences in content. So why is this important? Listen, I can, with all confidence and conviction, stand before you and say this. What we hold in our hand is God's word. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is something you can believe in. There is not just internal evidences, but external evidences that verify the seamlessness and consistency that the copies of copies of copies of copies have not changed. So what we hold in our hands today and say is the word of God can be trusted. This, this should bring hope in us. Think, just think about copies of copies of copies of copies. Have you played the telephone game? In this room, if we played this, I was like, here's a message that starts here, and then you, know, you, you kind of whisper it and you whisper it and you whisper it, you get to the end, and it's like, this is nuts, right? I'm not even close to what was said. I would promise you in this room alone, if we just took 20 people and played that game, that the message at the other end would be far different than the one given in the beginning. Yet the Bible, listen to this, when you take the manuscripts of the, of the ancient manuscripts, they tell us 99.6% consistent. And that small portion not consistent is only grammatical. But we can trust this book, amen? We can trust this book. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? I wish I had more time for this and I don't. But I want you to listen to me. What does this mean? If the Bible is, in fact, the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God, and I've just, I've just pointed to the, to, the, to, the, to the water on the umbrella, what does that mean for us? It means the Bible is to be our ultimate authority. The Bible is to be our ultimate authority. Logically speaking, think about this. If the Bible is divinely inspired word of God, if it is God's word and God is in authority, then guess what? The word of God is also our authority that we should obey it and believe it and trust it and walk in it, that it should not just be a book that we put on our bookstand or in our, on our coffee table or a book that we refer to every now and then or something we read, a little excerpt from the Scriptures and a lot of man's word. No, no, no. The Bible should be the foundation on which our life is resting in its entirety, that we should walk in submission to it. If this book is God's word, then we need to know. How, how do we know God? It's in this book. How do we live for God from this book? How do we know His plan for our life. It's in this book and it is to be the ultimate authority for us. Which means, listen, we should read it. We should obey it. We should memorize it and we should share it. Listen, this book, if it is in fact the inspired word of God, it must become the lens by which we see the entire world through. How do we make decisions as families on what activities we're going to get in and what things are going to be priority? We, we, we look and we answer that through the lens of the Scripture. How do we know where we stand on this political issue or this moral dilemma or this situation within our friends? How do we, how do we make those decisions? We, we navigate our life through the lens of the Scripture. It doesn't matter what popular culture says. It doesn't matter what your mom and dad says. It doesn't matter what your friend says. It doesn't matter what society thinks of you. What matters is that this is God's word, and if it's God's word, it has final say no matter what the culture says, no matter what the culture does. And listen, until we as believers return to this book, listen, we'll never be used by God to the fullest extent that he wants to use us. And listen, we will never see a movement of God 
in and through us. There's a quote I read this week. I don't know who the author of it is, but he says this, the Christians who have turned the world upside down have been men and women with a vision in their heart and a Bible in their hands. Here is my charge for you. Get in the Word daily. Submit to it. Let it be the navigating, the guidance system for your life. Let it inform how you think, how you live, and what you do. And listen, and let it be the foundation of your life so that, listen, so that you can be useful for the kingdom. And that God can, as you share the message that is in this book, listen, the scripture says it is, it is powerful and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. This word is alive and it has the ability to transform hearts, transform minds, and listen, and transform culture. Let's get after it. Amen. Jesus, I love you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for who... Lord, you, you, you've revealed yourself to be in your word. I just thank you, Lord, that, that we can know you. We don't have to, to, to figure out or, or, or write our own literature to determine who you are. You have revealed yourself to us in creation, in your word, and in your son. And as we navigate this, this life of pursuing the word in flesh named Jesus, God, may your written word be the governance of our life. May we recognize that we belong to a kingdom. And that kingdom has a document that is to be our, our source of authority. And God, may we, may we submit to it. May we know it. May we walk in it. May we allow the light of the gospel to be shined through our life as we proclaim it. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen.